You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit Irreverent FM for more content from my friends. Hello, hello, and welcome to Bad Words, an evangelical podcast where we give toxic theology the read that it deserves by taking another look at some of the books that have been given major influence in evangelical Christianity. I am Janice Legata, and this is a patron-only meeting of the Bad Book Club, an unedited episode where I read through my notes on the chapters live and in real time, maybe all by myself or maybe with guests as my jod-willing patrons do have the option to join in. But either way, it's just a little something extra, so without further ado, let's get into... Hi, this is usually the place where we have a reading of the first paragraph of this week's chapter, but this is a special bonus episode. Moving forward, you'll notice that the bad word schedule is two weeks on, one week off. But not everybody has an off week. Each Friday on Patreon, Janice shares her notes for the next chapter and every third week, that off week, she records a special patron-only episode where she talks through her notes and responds to comments and questions about the most recent chapters. It is unedited, it is uncensored and it is usually unavailable to the general public. But she's making an exception this one time to give a sneak peek for anyone considering maybe becoming a financial supporter. So listen in this one time and if you want access to more of this kind of content, head on over to Patreon and sign up to be jodly or jodwilling. But in the meantime, if you came here looking for the usual slick production, please manage your expectations and buckle up for random thoughts, rambles and rants. And in this particular episode, a lot of fuck you, Johns. All right, chapter twos, here we go. I don't remember exactly what I did last time or how how I did it, and I'm not trying to make a big production out of this, as you as you know. So, uh, you get what you get. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, best of luck to all of us. So, Wild at Heart, chapter two. Um, The actual title is The Wild One Whose Image We Bear. It starts with three quotes, none of them from the Bible, just FYI. And then we're off and running with John's story, his his remembrances and recollections of spending summers at Peepaw's. He does not call him Peepaw, he calls him Pop. Um, But yeah, so summers at Pop's. And he says... The redemption of my life and the real training grounds for my own masculine journey took place on that ranch where I spent my boyhood summers. So my first note in this chapter is like, oh, so John's life was redeemed and his masculinity defined during the summers. Hmm. Um, and other suburban boys, dot, 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 question mark, question mark. What, what, what becomes of them? I guess, I guess they don't get the journeys that they need. How sad. Uh, He talks about his pop taking him to a little mercantile, an old, old country supply shop. And he says it smelled of hay and linseed oil, of leather and gunpowder and kerosene, all the things that that thrill a boy's heart. And I said, really, are those the things that thrill a boy's heart? Maybe they are. I, I wouldn't know, I guess. Uh, and then his pop, he doesn't, he doesn't say how old he was this summer, but his pop buys him a, a BB rifle and a quart-sized milk carton with about a million BBs in it. A million. Okay. And hands, hands them to him. 
and the old shopkeeper looked a bit surprised as he stared down at me, squinting over his glasses. Isn't he a bit young for that? Pop put his hand on my shoulder and smiled. This is my grandson, Hal. He's riding shotgun for me. So I... Yeah, so I said, so I'm supposed to believe this old country shopkeeper was surprised by a boy being given a BB gun? I don't buy it. This book is a work of fiction full of fictional accounts. Yeah, these are, this, this is not real. These stories are not real. I don't, I don't believe. So that's that. The next section, where do we come from? Um, he's still talking about this BB gun and he says being given that gun I was invited to be dangerous. If a boy is to become a man, if a man is to know he is one, this is not an option. And I said, yikes. The idea that being dangerous is how a boy becomes a man and how a man knows that he is a man. Yikes. Yikes. And then he starts talking about his friend Craig whose father was killed in, whose biological father was killed in the Korean War when Craig was a baby. And then Craig grew up with a stepfather who was a sour old Navy captain who would call Craig a seagull. Um, so he talks about how his dad was a warrior who had been cut down in battle. How if he had lived, he was planning on going to the mission field to take the gospel to a place no one, no one else had ever been before. Um, so in this story, Craig's biological father is this hero who would have gone on to do great things. But then I remembered in chapter one, when John is talking about Legends of the Fall and the son who went to war and got killed, he said... You know, he got killed because he was not ready for battle, but those rules don't apply to Craig's biological father. Um, and also this idea that, you know, if he had lived, he was planning on going on the mission field. First of all, that's not, in my opinion, a great aspiration. Um, mission work is not something I'm in support of, so... Just a different form of colonization. So, oh, he was going to go on to colonize. But all that aside, there's no way of knowing what kind of man Craig's father would have become if he had lived. Someone who did go to war and lived was Craig's stepdad, right? The sour old Navy captain. War changes people. It's not, it's not a good time. It's not a good thing. And yeah. Craig's father, biological father, went off to war, an idealistic young man, perhaps, but we don't know what he would have become had he lived. And so this is just one of those things, you know, where we kind of just idolize, idolize the dead, and we give people a lot of credit for what they might have been and compare, you know, living people to them. And it's, and it's not fair because there's just no way to know. Um, then he starts talking about, so Craig eventually grew up and changed, changed his last name back to his biological father's name. Um, and when he did, 
John says he took back a much more noble identity, a much more dangerous place in the story. And I just question marks because what, 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 what does that even mean? Then he says, many men are ashamed of their fathers. You're just like your father is an arrow. Many a bitter mother fires at her son. Most of the men I know are trying hard not to become like their fathers. And I just, what, why this, what? Again, this says way more about John and the people that he knows than life in general. Um, Yeah. So that's that. Then at the end of this section, how did he even get here from that? He's talking about, okay, I guess it makes sense. So he starts out, you know, saying how being dangerous is what makes a man a man and how a man knows he is a man. But then he's talking about how a lot of people would rather that men be like, (laughs) would be like Jesus. Isn't he sort of meek and mild? Um, and so he doesn't like this picture of Jesus as only meek and mild because that reminds him of Mother Teresa and, or Mr. Rogers with a beard and telling me to be like him feels like telling me to go limp and passive, be nice, be swell, be like Mother Teresa. I'd much rather be told to be like William Wallace. And so I think his problem with being like Mother Teresa is the thought of being like a woman, no way, perish the thought. And yeah, he would rather be like a fictional man than a real woman. And yeah, that to me is John Eldridge in a nutshell. And then the funny thing is at the very beginning, this chapter, like I said, it starts with three quotes. And one of the quotes is from Philip Yancey. And it says, how would telling people to be nice to one another get a man crucified? What government would execute Mr. Rogers or Captain Kangaroo? And honestly, in 2023, I legitimately think that a lot of Republicans, Trump, Trump, Trump Republicans, would execute Mr. Rogers or Captain Kangaroo if they could for being too woke, right? Um, So on one hand, I think, you know, the Philip Yancey quote is getting at the fact that Jesus was more, more dangerous than he appeared to be because, you know, why would you execute this man if he was just this meek and mild sort of person? But then... You know, John is horrified at the thought of someone telling him to be like Mr. Rogers with a beard. So John's math, it never it never quite maths. So yeah, there's that. Next section is called Braveheart Indeed. And he starts um Yeah, so the last section ended with him, you know, I'd rather be told to be like William Wallace, and then he starts the next section. Wallace, if you'll recall, is the hero of the film Braveheart. So he goes on and mixing fact and fiction, as is his want to do, telling the story of William Wallace, but not really. He's he's telling the story of Braveheart. Um, And so he says, Wallace is the first to defy the English oppressors and I question that the first seems unlikely then he compares 
um, the English that Wallace was going up against to Pharisees. You know, he's saying that, yeah, no, no. The nobles who should have been on Wallace's side, I guess, Scottish nobles, they are like the Pharisees. Bureaucrats, religious administrators, whatever. And all of this, anytime we're comparing, you know, people to Pharisees, uh, we got to be careful. Can get very anti-Semitic very quick. And also we forget Jesus. Jesus was a Pharisee. Um, Pharisee is not a synonym for for villain. Um, it is a type. Yeah, it's just a class, a class of people. And within that class, there are good and there are bad. But we get none of that. None of that from John Eldridge. So there's that. Uh, later in this section, we get my favorite, favorite sentence, definitely from this chapter, maybe from the book so far. Um, when John says, can you believe this guy? What a weasel talking about missing, talk about missing the point. And that is, that is John Eldridge to a T to me. Uh, battle to fight is the next section. And he's talking about, yeah, just kind of the viciousness of, of the Lord when necessary because um, again, we're we're railing against this idea of Jesus's meek and mild, right? We don't like that. We want men to be able to be dangerous, so we have to we have to make God dangerous, right? So he he scoffs at this idea. You know, the Lord is a gentleman, <laughs> not if you're in the service of His enemy, and a circled enemy. Because imagine being an enemy. Of God, so he says, you know, in the service of his enemies. So I guess that's that's the devil. So you're in the service of of the devil, but that's just that just seems really really harsh. Yeah, I don't know. Just this idea. I don't like this idea of enemies enemies of God. Like it just no good, no good can come of it. Um, and basically. He's trying to, you know, justify, justify bloodshed in the name of God. Because this first paragraph ends with, you know, does wholesale slaughter fit under calling on your new neighbors? Like this idea that sometimes, you know, in the Bible, they had to go in and wipe out um, other people, wipe out their neighbors. And that was the godly thing to do. So again, playing up this idea that, that God and manliness is, is, is dangerous. Then he talks about Samson, and he says he had a pretty impressive masculine resume, um, and then talks about how the Philistines used Samson's first wife against him and then eventually burned her to death, and so... His masculinity, as far as I can see, was of no help to her. Um, so what 
What good is it? What is it for? What is it for, John? What is masculinity for? Because it didn't help her. And it didn't really help him. Like, he just got to go around and be enraged. But this is all after the fact. It didn't actually solve anything. Um, So then John says, I'm not advocating for a sort of macho man image. And I, my question is, well, what are you advocating for, John? Then he says... And I said, this is stupid. You can tell what kind of man you've got simply by noting the impact he has on you. Does he make you bored? Does he scare you with his doctrinal Nazism? Don't know what that means. What is that? What is that? Um, does he make you want to scream because he's just so very nice? No, John, that's not a, that's not a problem. That's not an issue. Um, and then the different men have different impacts on different people. If, if, if I can tell what kind of man I've got by simply noting the impact he has on you. Well, then I can tell that John Eldridge is garbage because of the impact that he has on me. So I don't think he really wants this to be as hard and fast of a rule as he's, he's pretending in this book because his impact on me, not good. It's not good. So there you go. Then he's got this whole part where he just puts this a copy of this poem called Ballad of the Goodly Fair, Frera, the Goodly Man, the Goodly Brother, I guess. And I said, I could have done without this poem. I hate this. It's just, it's such a boring, long, boring poem. So I don't know why. This was a waste. This was a waste of my time and a waste of space in this book which is already a waste. So it's like a waste within a waste. It's, it's too much waste. It's too much waste. Um, let's see. And then, again, remember, this is the 2021 20, edition of this book. And I've also been, you know, reading the 2001 version and making note of the differences that jump out. So here, at the end of this little section, he took out a few little sentences. Um, One of the sentences that he took out was, now that sounds a lot more like William Wallace than it does Mother Teresa. And it's talking about the, the verse in Revelation where Christ returns. He is at the head of a dreadful company, mounted on a white horse with a double-edged sword, his robe dipped in blood. So that's what he says sounds more like William Wallace than Mother Teresa. Um, No question about it. Our God is a warrior. And, oh, so that used to say, no question about it, there is something fierce in the heart of our God. So I guess that wasn't, that wasn't, to the point enough for him, so he changed it. Um, let's see. The next section, what about adventure? And this section, man, he took out a lot, moved a lot, changed a lot of things around, because there's this whole weird bit where he's trying to say that God loves adventure, and part of God loving, God loving adventure is why he doesn't intervene in certain situations. Um, Yeah. Yeah. 
and it's it's a lot. It's a mess. It's a mess. Like this chapter. Let me see. He says, most of us do everything we can to reduce the element of risk in our lives. <laughs> we wear our seatbelts. We watch our cholesterol and practice birth control. Um, so my question is, is this reducing risk or is this reducing harm? And is that the same thing? And I don't think it is. Like, is, is the dangerous part, is the risky part, like driving is just risky. Having high cholesterol is just risk. Like wearing a seatbelt doesn't eliminate the risk associated with driving. It just lessens possible harm if something goes wrong. So yeah, this equating risk with harm and not knowing the difference, it's, it's not good. Um, what did he say? He talks about how God, God made the world wild, right? Like he made, <laughs> he made bears and, and forests and nature, um, and after God made all this, he pronounced it good for heaven's sake. It's his way of letting us know he rather prefers adventure, danger, risk, the element of surprise. But like, nature is not risky to itself. Like, bears are not walking around thinking, oh man, this world is so dangerous. Like, bears are just living their lives. Bears are dangerous to us when we go into their habitat, but like this book not only is extremely man-centered and man-centric, obviously, but it's very, and this will sound kind of silly, but go with it. It's very human, human-centered. And a lot of our things are, we're like we can't help it. Like we see ourselves as the center of the universe, but that's not necessarily so. Like bears, bears are, I don't think bears are here for us. Bears are here for God. God made bears because God wanted bears. They're not, I don't, I don't think we're more important than bears, right? Like <laughs> when the earth, when the earth gets tired of humanity, when the earth is like, okay, these people are doing too much and I it, I can't survive if they if they keep living like this. Nature will get rid of us and then nature will go on. Um like I don't know, I just think about it sometimes and like yes, we we have our we have our bible, right? And it's told from our point of view, but maybe bears have theirs and it's told from their their point of view. And to them, we are dangerous, not because we're stronger or better, but because we're, we're stupid. We don't, we don't respect everybody else's, every, every other body's space and things. We have no respect for that. And so just this idea that, you know, God made all these things 
that are dangerous and risky to us, they're really only dangerous and risky when we're, when we're out of place. Like they are in their place doing what they're supposed to do. So yes, of course, of course they're good. Um, yeah, so that's my little rant about that. Um, and then, like I said, he cuts out these whole, these whole big chunks and I don't even want, I don't even have time to go into them. Maybe, maybe I'll just put, put them on the Patreon too. So you can just see them yourself. But just this idea that like God is basically out here, uh, letting us suffer because God craves adventure and God wants to see how things are going to go, even though God knows how things are going to, it's, it's weird. It's a mess. Um, and I, he took it out because he knew it was a mess. It's a mess. So there's that. Um, yeah, and then he ends he ends this section with a new sentence. This was not in the original, but the new ending sentence is, he loves adventure, he made little boys. And that is such a weird, weird sentence. But there you go. The next section... A beauty to fight for. Um, huh. Not many notes here. Uh, just where he... He took out... He took out this one sentence. See, it says, God is romantic at heart, and he has his own bride to fight for. He is a jealous lover, and his jealousy is for the hearts of his people and for their freedom. This is what he took out right here. As Francis Frangipani so truly states, rescue is the constant pattern of God's activity. And he took that out and... Yeah, I have (laughs) no further comment. Uh, The next section, little boys and little girls. He is trying to talk about gender. And how he took he took a lot of this a lot of this was originally in chapter one and he took it out of there and then he reworded some of it and then moved it moved it to this this section. And he says, you know, gender simply must be at the level of the soul, but then says a bunch of things that just contradict that. Um And he says, as Lewis said, and I said, Lewis who? Because I'm assuming it's, I was assuming it was C.S. Lewis, but nowhere previously in this chapter has C.S. Lewis been referenced, except for one of the quotes at the top of the chapter. But like, he hasn't, he hasn't quoted C.S. Lewis before. So this is, this is lazy, bad writing. And again, we're just assuming we're speaking to an in crowd, I guess. But yeah, so as Lewis said, Gender is a reality and a more fundamental gender is a reality and a more fundamental reality than sex. Dot 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 a fundamental polarity which divides all created beings. So 
Again, he didn't say which Lewis, so then I just put put the first half of this quote into Google. So it came up, yes, it is C.S. Lewis, and it's this whole big, it's this big paragraph. Um, and I don't think what C.S. Lewis is what John Eldridge, I don't think they're saying the same thing, but John mangles this quote so much that it's just kind of indecipherable. So that dot, 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 by using that dot, dot, dot and tagging on that a fundamental polarity which divides all created beings, John makes it work for what he wants it to work for, but there is a sentence in between there that I think kind of changes it, changes it around. So this is John Eldridge just taking words and just using them, trying to make other people say what he is saying, trying to make other people agree with him. I'll also link to that quote because it is, it is long and yeah, it's just more, more, more work than I wanted to do. Like, I don't want to have to think about this and try to decipher what C.S. Lewis was saying to try to decipher what John Eldridge is saying. Like, it's not, it's not fair. It's messy and it's, it's dishonest, frankly. So there's that. And then he goes on talking about male and female now, gender is, again, he says it's at the level of the soul, but then everything he says, everything else that he says just really, really brings it back down to the body and what, what body parts you have. So there's that. Um, then he starts talking about little girls and women and how the heart cry of women Years of hearing the heart cry of women is how John came to be convinced beyond a doubt that God wants to be loved. So I said, weak-ass, womanly God just wants to be loved. So that's, yeah, that's the weak and womanly part of God, this need to be loved, which is weird because... I don't know. I feel like the original evangelical narrative, right, is that God created us all out of love, like this want for relationship. So it's weird that John discovers that in the end, right? Oh, oh my goodness. Woman is here to show us that God just wants to be loved. Oh, poor sad God. And and woman is what he created to fulfill that that little need that yeah that random little need of his. So it's like, were, were we created out of love or not, John? I guess not. Uh, then comes Adam, the triumph of God's handiwork, and yet there's one more finishing touch. It's climax with her. She is God's finishing touch. So man is the triumph, and then woman is the finishing touch. And then he pulls this quote the scripture quote, as Paul later wrote, man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And I said, this is so fucking reductive and honest and dishonest. It's dishonest. That is not what this quote, what the scripture is about at all. This is talking about church business and whether or not women have to wear a head covering, right? So he says men don't have to wear a head covering um, because man is the image and glory of God, but women should wear a head covering because woman is the glory of the man. 
This is, this is about this one thing, and John is extrapolating this out to say that this is, this, is, this is how it is for all of time, that man is the image and glory of God, and woman is the glory of man, and again, so reductive and so, so dishonest, and I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Um, and then he has this poem and all of, let me see, even that, yeah, even that quote was highlighted. So that was not in the original, in the original text. So John added this. So he needed a little more punch for his stupid, stupid chapter. So he, he made that up and added it. And then, oh, and then this poem was in the original, but he, he added, added, because John loves, he loves a dot, 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 right? So to take things, take things out, add things in as he sees fit to make things say what he wants them to say. So in the original version of Wild at Heart, it just said, um, I think, what did it say? The naked, the nakedness of a woman is the work of God. Okay, so the whole quote is, the nakedness of woman is the work of God, the roaring of lions, the howling of wolves, the raging of the stormy seas, and the destructive sword are portions of eternity too great for the eye of man. And in the original version, it just said the nakedness of woman is, I think it was like, is a portion of eternity too great for the eye of man. So, yeah, I don't know why, why he added to it. But again, this is making the existence of woman all about man, right? Woman is the glory of man. Man is the glory of God, and then woman is the glory of man. Reductive, reductive, reductive. And that is... At the end of chapter two, those are my notes. Um, let me see. So this chapter was a waste of 5,562 words and approximately 13 and a half estimated minutes of reading time. Um, Jesus. So in chapter one. You remember that Jesus slash Christ only got men two mentions, uh, and then God was mentioned 15 times. This chapter whew, blows those stats out of the water. Jesus is mentioned 20 times, Christ twice, so 22 times for Jesus, and God 62 times God is mentioned. Now, a lot of these are because he is pulling chunks of scripture if you take out the chunks of scripture where Jesus gets mentioned because the bible mentions him then Jesus is only mentioned 11 times um and I didn't do that for God but I would say half of those so God still gets a lot of mentions good job God um but if you were to, so we'll take God out because God, God can't be the man of the chapter because, because God is God. Um, 
Again, if you take the biblical mentions of Jesus out, so John didn't actually write these, right? He was just, just using scriptures that happened to mention Jesus. So if we take that out, John mentions Jesus 11 times. And Jesus gets so close, so close to being the man of the chapter. But then Craig, remember Craig, whose father would have been a great man had he lived? Craig was mentioned 10 times. So Craig came pretty close to being a man of the chapter. But ultimately, we get William Wallace slash Braveheart with 12 mentions. So chapter 2. Man of the hour, surprise, surprise, William Wallace, uh, the fictional Braveheart. And that is, that's chapter two of Wild at Heart. Now moving on to Captivating. Captivating, chapter two, what Eve alone can tell. And starts out with two quotes, one from C.S. Lewis, one from Bob Dylan, zero from the Bible. Surprise, surprise. Um, and I talked a lot about this on the, the actual episode, but Stacy's love of the princess Anastasia. Um, she's talking about how her parents named her after a saint, a woman martyred for her faith. Um, and yeah, her name is spelled, she spells her name S-T-A-S-I, which when the, when the computer robots are reading her name, they always call her Stasi, Stasi. So I have to always go through and fix that. Um, so she talks about, yeah, why her name is spelled so weird is because they named her after, yeah, these Anast this Anastasia, and she's taking her name from that. Um, so she says, you know, she loves her name, and there's a deeper reason, and the deeper reason is the story of the princess, Anastasia. So I said, oh, so the fairy tale to her is deeper than the, religious significance and that that tracks um yeah and talking about the yeah the mystery of the princess Anastasia and I said yeah is it a mystery or is it a debunked conspiracy theory because it's a debunked shh, it's a debunked conspiracy theory but you know um, and then I said, fairy tales based on true stories are still fairy tales. So there's that. Um, next page, she asks, have you ever wondered why the Cinderella story keeps haunting us? And I ask, who is us? Who is us? Stacy? I'm not personally haunted by the Cinderella story. So who is us? Are you, listener, are you, are you haunted by the Cinderella story? If you are, uh, let me know. And yeah, and that us just kind of reminded me or set something off of me. So then for a little while, I was keeping track of, of the we's and the us's. And yeah, so there's a lot of we and us with no clarification. 
Um, and it switches between we, you know, referring to we women and then we as in John and Stacy. So it's again, not a lot, not a lot of clarity. And they're just playing fast and loose with, yeah, with these pronouns. <laughs> um, we are reminded of Pascal's metaphor that our unmet longings and unrequited desires are, in fact, the miseries of a dethroned monarch. And I said dethroned. Dethroned for what? That's, that's the question that we're not asking. That's the part we're not thinking about. Said so mankind is like a king or queen in exile. And I said, well, what is, what is a king or queen in exile missing? Because they have their lives. So to be in exile, like, they just don't have their power anymore. This is all about power. Um, what would you expect the queen of a kingdom and the beauty of the realm to feel when she wakes up to find herself a laundress in a foreign land? And so my so I said, oh, so the queen is automatically the beauty? Hmm. Uh, the great emptiness we feel points to the great place we were created for. And I don't, do we, do I feel great emptiness? Not all the, no, not just as a general rule sometimes, but not all, the, like that's not my general state. Like, oh, I just feel just just general emptiness cuz i'm not i'm not a queen <laughs> mm. all those legends and fairy tales of the undiscovered princess and the beauty hidden as a maid are more accurate than we thought legends and fairy tales i circled those words legends and fairy tales these are stories these are not real And then, then this next section, I just bracket it and ask, who, who is writing this? And that is, that is a question throughout this whole book, honestly. Who is writing this? And they want us to think that it is Stacy. I am convinced it is John. John, John, and mostly John. Um... Yeah. All right, and then this next this next section, I'm just going to read it and then yeah, so this next section, I'll put a bracket around it. It's not a whole section, it's just a paragraph. Um and I said, "Who who is writing this?" And so so yeah, I'm just going to read it and then then I'll tell you why I asked that question. Rather than asking, what should a woman do? What is her role? It would be far more, more helpful to ask, what is woman? What is her design? And why did God place woman in our midst? We must go back to her beginnings, to the story of Eve. Even though we might have heard the story before, we have told it many times, it bears repeating. We clearly haven't learned its lessons, for if we had, men would treat women much, much differently, and women would view themselves in a far better light. So let us start there with light, with the dawn of the world. So, again, my question is, who is writing this? Because if the question is, 
Why did God place woman in our midst? Who is our? Because it's not, it's not women. Even though this book is supposed to be for women, this is not a question for women. Because I can't ask, why did God place Janice in my midst? I am Janice. I can't be in my own in my own midst. I can be in the midst of other things. But if the question is, <laughs> why is Janice in the midst of this? I'm not asking that question. That is somebody else questioning why I am in their their sphere or some sphere that is not mine, right? So I don't believe Stacy wrote this. Uh, and again, it's just the centering of, of men. God didn't place women in our midst. God placed women in God's midst. Why did why? God, women, everything... It's supposed to be for God. So this idea, like questioning, why did, why did God put this here in my midst? Like that's so reductive again and so selfish and so just man-centric. Yeah. And again, this book is supposed to be for women, about women, by a woman. And it's not. It's not. It's just not. Um, and then that, that last sentence there, just of the section, not of the book, not of this chapter, you wish. Um, we clearly haven't learned his lessons for if we had, again, who is we? Hmm? Men would treat women much, much differently and women would view themselves in a far better light. And I just thought about like how how differently this would read and how different, yeah, just how differently it would read if he had switched, just switched those. So it says, men would treat women much, much differently and women would view themselves in a far better light. Men would treat women, but how much better would it be if it read, men would treat women far better and women would view themselves much, much differently. If this book liked women at all, that would have been a better choice, but here we are. And again, yeah, God did not place women in our midst. God placed women in God's midst. So, yeah. The next section called The Crown of Creation, and um, it starts with, to understand the creation story, John here, yeah, John, we know, we know, you've been writing this whole time, Stacy got the little Anastasia bit, and then you, you clearly pushed her aside and said, ah, yeah, I'll take it from here, uh, he's talking about creation, and again, I think our view of creation, very, very man-centric and very, very human-centric. Um, and just this idea that, you know, we are, we are the height, we are the pinnacle. Just, you know, consider, just consider. Maybe we're not. Um, 
with this one part. He says, a cricket is amazing, but it cannot compare to a wild horse. I said, like, in what sense? Like a cricket, a cricket is a cricket and a horse is a horse. And a cricket would be awful at running races, I guess, or um, being a horse, but a horse would be awful at hopping around like a cricket. Like, I just think everything in creation is what it's supposed to be. And when we try to compare things to say what's better, it's very subjective. And if God, you know, wanted crickets to be horses, then God should have made crickets horses. And so a cricket is amazing. A wild horse is amazing. And there's room for both of those. We don't have to be comparing things. Yeah, and that's my little rant on that. Um, then we're back to this idea of Eve. She is the master's finishing touch. Ugh, I hate that. And again, we get this, this uh, out-of-context use of Paul's quote, right? As Paul later writes, man is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Out of context, reductive, not what that verse is saying, not what it's about. Fuck you, John. There's that. Um, The next section, what does Eve speak to us? The story of Eve holds such rich treasures for us to discover. The essence and purpose of a woman is unveiled here in the story of her creation. I said, how? How, John? Um, And it says, and she too bears the image of God, but in a way that only the feminine can speak. So I said, as if man is the whole image of God, but woman is only part of it. All right, and then this next section, romance and relationships, the answer to loneliness. And there's a quote from Byron that says, man's love is of a man's life a thing apart. Tis a woman's whole existence. And I said, shut up, Byron. So again, this idea that like love is a part of a man's life, but it is is everything to women. And fuck you again, John, because were we created out of love or were we not? So there's that. Um, and then we get to the part where he's talking about, you know, macro versus micro issues. Radio talk show host Dennis Prager, to which I said, who? What? <laughs> this book is so old, you guys. And so out of date. Um, but again, this idea of macro, macro issues like politics or finance. And then micro issues involving human relationship issues like dating or faithfulness or children. I said, imagine thinking children are a micro issue. Um, Yeah. And then there's this whole section. Yeah. That Deanna and I talked about, you know, where most women define themselves in terms of relationships. So yeah, we already talked about that. Um, then he references himself and what he wrote in Wild at Heart about, you know, after years of hearing the hearts cry of women, I'm convinced beyond a doubt of this, God wants to be loved. Um, 
And yeah, and I wrote again. So this is the weak and womanly side of God. Woman is the weak and womanly side of God that just just wants to be loved. Uh, Yeah. Then he talks about, can there be any doubt that God wants to be sought after? God longs to be desired just as a woman longs to be desired. This is not some weakness or insecurity on the part of a woman, that deep yearning to be desired. And yeah, so then my question, so men don't want to be desired. Um, I don't think that's true. Let's see. And then, yeah, so then you're talking about all the things that God has endowed women with. As the old saying goes, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. That's just how God acts. That's just how God acts when he's not chosen. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God who would not share your affection with any other God. A woman's righteous jealousy speaks of the jealousy of God for us. So it says, oh, so all the petty attributes of God are feminine. (laughs) How lucky. How lucky for us. The next section, an adventure to share. Um, no notes, I guess. Not because it was great, just because your girl is tired. Oh, and this is where you get all the Ezra Connecto stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we talked a lot about that in the actual episode. You see, the life God calls us to is not a safe life. Ask Joseph, Abraham, Moses, Deborah, Esther, any of the friends of God from the Old Testament. Ask Mary and Lazarus. Ask Peter, James, and John. Ask Priscilla and Aquila. Um, This is a book for women. Why are so many men mentioned? So in that section, I was just bracketing off the women. So he mentioned one, two, three, four, five, six, seven men, eight, eight men, and then one, two, three, four women. So two to one. Um, there you go, women. These are your heroes, mostly men. And then, yeah, so he mentions, again, that is eight men and four women. So 12 biblical characters and one little, one little quick paragraph, right? And then we get a whole section where he repeats, like writes out dialogue, a whole, a whole little scenario from Lord of the Rings. So they get 12 biblical characters, got a paragraph, and then Arwen and Aragorn get half a page, a little over half a page, basically. So all this time and space taken up for fictional characters. Classic Eldridge. Um... Oof. And so you'll see women are endowed with fierce devotion and ability to suffer great hardships and a vision to make the world a better place. And I said, yikes. Women are endowed with an ability to suffer great hardships? Ew, John. Ew. Ugh. Next section. Beauty to unveil. It says, beauty. I, John, just let out a deep sigh. Again. We know it's you, John. We know. We know. Um, that, we, that we even need to explain how beauty is so absolutely essential to God only shows how dull we have grown to him. 
I said, but, but do you need to explain this? Why? Who's asking? Who has asked you to explain this? You don't need to explain it. You don't. You don't. And then there's this sentence, nature is not primarily functional, it is primarily beautiful. And I said, I don't think this is true. We talked about that on the episode. Um, And then I said, or maybe nature is primarily functional and it is beautiful because it was doing what it was created to do. That's my thought on that. Uh, Let's see. Then he talks about John's John's visions from Revelation and how John describes God as radiant as gemstones, as richly adorned in golds and reds and greens and blues, shimmering as crystal. Why, these are the very things the Cinderella is given, the very things women still prefer to adorn themselves with when they want to look their finest and I... I roll emoji. Ugh. Let's see. Oh. Then Stacy and John go to spend a weekend together in Santa Fe, New, Me- New Mexico, and they go to some art galleries. And toward the afternoon of our second day, Stacy asked me, Have you seen one painting of the naked man? The point was startling. After days of looking at maybe a thousand pieces of art, we had not seen one painting devoted to the beauty of the naked masculine form. Not one. Granted, there are a few examples down through history, but only a few. For one thing, men look ridiculous lying on a bed, buck naked, half covered with a sheet. It doesn't fit the essence of masculinity. Um, Yeah. He says men are Adam... Adam is captured best in motion, doing something. His essence is strength in action. That's why a passive man is so disturbing. And on the other hand, Eve just doesn't look right in a scene of brutal combat or chopping down a tree. And to all of this, I said, shut up, John. Shut up. You know what? I'd be fine with a picture of a buck naked man reclining covered in a sheet like this and I'm um I think I'm going to put this episode out as a bonus episode that everyone can hear so I'm not going to say everything that I want to say about John Eldridge but I just this section uh, me thinks the lady doth protest too much, and I'm going to leave it, leave it at that. And remember, I do not believe that the lady is writing this at all. And, and it's clear that the lady is not, because John is literally talking about what Stacy and, and him did. But yeah, the lady doth protest too much. So there's that. Um, and then he talks about, yeah, just talks about art and how historically... Art shows men at war and women, you know, women just reclining and being beautiful. And he says, this is true across all cultures and down through time. And I said, nope, it's not true. It's not true. That is not, that may be the art that um, 
has survived and has been chosen to be representative in white museums. Um, but that is not all the art in the world. And again, let's not forget this this book is very, very man-centric, very white man-centric. So the idea that the type of art that he is seeing and the type of galleries that he is going to is representative of all cultures and through all of time, again, fuck you, John, and shut up. So there's that. Um, then he, he talks about, you know, beauty, beauty being comforting and how we're all seeking beauty and whatever. And then he talks about traffic, you know, think of, think of what it is like to be caught in traffic for more than an hour, horns blaring, people shouting obscenities, exhaust pouring in your windows, suffocating you. I said, really? Is this how folks do traffic in Colorado? Like this is this is a movie scene. This is not this is not traffic, typical traffic. And you know what? Even if it is, I can do that for an hour with the right company and or the right music. Like like John John acts like these things are so everyday to this extreme, but then at the same time acts like we just can't can't cope. Like if you're, if that is the reality of your life every day, you're going to spend more than an hour in traffic. And some people do, right? And when you're there for that whole time, horns are blaring and people are shouting obscenities and exhaust is pouring in your windows, suffocating you. At some point you got to learn how to cope, right? And you have to find a way to make that bearable for yourself. And maybe it'll never be beautiful, but you can find beauty in the midst of it. Yeah, so there's that. What are we... Then he's, yeah, so we're still talking about beauty and how beauty comfort and beauty beauty inspires. Think of what it must might have been like to be in the presence of a woman like Mother Teresa. Oh, now, now we like Mother Teresa. Here she is. Her life was so beautiful, and it called us to something higher. A teacher in the inner city explained to us why he insisted on putting, putting a fountain and flowers in the courtyard of a building. Because these children need to be inspired. They need to know that life can be better beauty inspires and all the side eye for this little inner city comment the teacher in the inner city y'all know what that means right we all know what that's code for and again fuck you john so there's that now we're still talking about beauty All these things are true for any experience of beauty, but they are especially true when we experience the beauty of a woman. Her eyes, her form, her voice, her heart, her spirit, her life. And again, I am asking, who is we? These books are so strange because here is this women's book, allegedly being written to women, but this is very clearly from a man, from a man's perspective, for men. And men are not reading this book. 
A few men did, yes, but they're like, you just talk about not knowing, not caring about your audience. This is John, this is John masturbating on these pages. This, these, are, these are about him, for him, from his perspective. It's, it's gross. It's, it's just, ugh. Or, um, it is a beautiful, beautiful ode and a beautiful ad for being a lesbian. Um, because the way this book uh, sees women and I guess wants us, whoever us is, to appreciate and use women, well, if you read this book and, yeah, suddenly want to play for the other team, I think I think you can be forgiven for that because, hey, I get it. Why not? Beauty is without question the most essential and most misunderstood of all of God's qualities, of all feminine qualities, too. So beauty is our most essential quality. Um, he says, without question. I said, mm, I have questions. Um, yeah. And here, okay. So, again, the we, the hours, right? Fast and loose. So he just finished talking about we, we experience, how we experience the beauty of women right? Which is clearly not from a woman's perspective. But then he's talking about how beauty is women's most essential quality. And he says, we know it has caused untold pain in the lives of women. Now, if this were a woman writing this to women, then I think it would just say, we know that it has caused untold pain in our lives, right? But it's not. So, so yeah, so we get that whole that whole bit. And then he says, beauty is without question the most essential and the most misunderstood of all God's qualities, of all feminine qualities. Without question. Well, I have questions. I have questions, John. Um, but even there, something is speaking. <laughs> Why so much heartache over beauty? And then peep, peep this vicious, shitty switch. Why so much heartache over beauty? We don't ache over being geniuses or fabulous hockey players. What? (laughs) So we, now he's going to pretend like this is women speaking. We don't ache over being geniuses? (sighs) Fuck you, John. What? Listen, listen, I am not every woman. Okay. I ache more over not being smart than not being beautiful. Could just be me. But even if it is only me, I'm the only girl in the world who does ache over being a genius. Then this isn't true. It's not true of all women. But then I guess John would say, well, you're just not womaning right. And maybe, maybe I'm not. Who's to say? Um, yeah, so we don't ache over the, 
over being geniuses or fabulous hockey players. Women ache over the issue of beauty. They ache to be beautiful, to believe they are beautiful, and they worry over keeping it if it if ever they can find it. This is the meanest. This is so reductive, so shitty, so mean. And he, John Eldridge is an awful, awful person who does not like women. But it's also hilarious because he couldn't say he's too fucking cowardly to just straight out say, right, women don't ache over being geniuses or fabulous hockey players. He has to pretend to step into this role and say, no, no, it's not me saying it. You guys said it. You said it. See? See? It says we. But then immediately switches back to women ache over. So shitty. So shitty. I hate, I hate John Eldridge. I hate him so much. So much. Almost. Almost. As much as he hates women. Almost. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. So we get all of that. We know, we know, we women, women, women. And then I was just at Starbucks and overheard a conversation between two women in their late 50s. The subject, weights and diets, their struggle with the issue of beauty. John Eldridge, John, I, him, he, this, uh, yeah. So there's that. Uh, the next section, but why, why, but why a beauty to unveil? Um, I don't know why, like it just, to me, reminds me of, of Zoolander, but why male models? Um, is this a uh, second to the last section? Thank God. We're so close. Uh, what is this? This is... Oh, and then we're going to get into some slut shaming here. Talking about, okay, so women want to be, women want, our our beauty is our most essential, right? Our most essential quality. Um, And women want to be beautiful. Women want to be desired. However, God, God doesn't, God doesn't just throw God's self at anyone, right? So, There is dignity here. God does not throw himself at any passerby. He is no harlot. If you would know him, you must love him. You must seek him with your whole heart. This is crucial to any woman's soul, not to mention her sexuality. You cannot simply have me. You must seek me, pursue me. I won't let you in unless I know you love me. This is not true. This is shaming. Um, and it's just this whole this whole little section here is just this idea that women women can only have sex right if they are in love, um, and it's just not true. It's just not true. Um, it's not. Yeah, is not the Trinity a great mystery? Not something to be solved, but known with ever-deepening pleasure and awe, something to be enjoyed. Just like God, a woman is not a problem to be solved. Who said she was, but a vast wonder to be enjoyed? And again, this is supposed to be a book to women, for women, about women. But who is supposed to enjoy women? Because also... This is still the section about desire and sex, because the very next sentence, well, we'll get to that. But this is about sex. 
So women are a vast wonder to be enjoyed. This is not for me. It's not from my perspective. Unless, unless this, this book, this chapter, is an ode to and an ad for being a lesbian, which maybe it is. And that, that too is a beautiful thing. Um, and I fully, fully support it, but John Eldridge does not. So this, this book, like this, this is John masturbating on these pages and pretending. I don't even know what he's pretending. This is not, this is not from a woman's perspective. This is not for, this is just about women from a man's perspective. And it's, it's gross and it's shame, shaming and it's dehumanizing. Um, so yeah, woman is not a problem to be solved. Again, who said she was, but a vast wonder to be enjoyed. This is so true of her sexuality. I told you this was still about sex. Few women can or even want to just do it. Again, not true. And also like, uh, as a man, you're a bad man. If you think that's true and you're fine with it, like, and you're like, oh, that's, that's, that tracks. That's good. Women don't, don't really like sex. It's just something to do to them. It's not for them. They are just here to be enjoyed. That is awful. That is awful. Again, fuck you, John, but not like that. Cause you're gross. Um, Foreplay is crucial to her heart. The whispering and loving, the exploring of one another that culminates in intercourse. And I think what you mean is the exploring of one another that, that culminates in penetration. Because again, this is all about, about men and, and their pleasure, right? Women are just here to be enjoyed. What if what John considers foreplay is enough for a woman? Like if there's no... For John, if there's no intercourse, sex has not happened. But sex is is bigger than that and could be, should be better than that when a woman's pleasure, when a woman is taken into account. But that that does not exist in John Eldridge's economy. Um yeah. 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 So there's, there's that section. And then finally, 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 the last section of this chapter in closing. And then that's that whole part about what did, what did I hear them say? Like, that's what, that's the question I'm supposed to, we're supposed to ask ourselves after reading. And again, this book is, this book is, uh, it's dishonest, it's deceptive, it's, it's a liar. What did I hear them say? Who is them? Who is them? This was John. Stacy didn't say this. This is John. Um, and then he says, you know, we did not say the woman, that a woman is prized only for her good looks. John, if you think that's the message that we're, why would you write that unless you think that's the message we're going to take away? Because that is, that is what you said. Um, we did not say that a woman is here merely to complete a man and therefore a single woman is somehow missing her destiny. John, by, by highlighting that these are things that we might've heard in this chapter that you're saying you did not say, these are the, these are the things that you said. 
you shitty, shitty man. That's what you said. That's what you said. That is what you said. That is what this chapter said. What we said was, first, that Eve is the crown of creation. But not all of creation. That's my note. But not all of creation. She's just an adornment. Like, I don't want to be the crown of creation. I am part of creation. Not the crown. I'm part of creation. A legitimate part of creation. So if woman is the crown, what what does she get to wear? What, like, nothing. We're just nothing. We're just the topper to this cake. We are, yeah, just this adornment, this little, this little fashion piece. Um, so even in trying to clean up what he says he didn't say, he's still saying shitty and reductive things. Um, yeah. So that's that. And then the last sentence of this chapter, there is a radiance hidden in your heart that the world desperately needs. And I guess the your is women. And so my question is, why do you just assume that every woman's radiance is hidden? And that is the end of Captivating Chapter 2. And it's ugh, ugh, awful, awful. Do you see now why I gave this chapter a 1.5? I wanted to give it a 1, because I can't imagine anything worse, but I know there is. This book only gets, this book, it's not a good book. It's just not a good book. So, let me see, what are the stats? What are the stats for this chapter? Um, this chapter, this chapter was, was too long. It wasted 7,321 words and approximately, yeah, 17.9. So 18, 18 minutes of reading time. Um, let's see. Jesus was mentioned one time and God, God was mentioned a lot. God, God, God got 113 mentions um but a lot of that yeah because talking about you know the uh womanly desperation and jealousy of god eve eve was mentioned 27 times and yeah eve got the most most mentions of any woman in this chapter uh, congratulations, Eve. But a fun, fun little stat that I did look up was he, he versus she. Now, in Wild at Heart, the word he is used 106 times and she only 10 times. Um, captivating the book for women. What, what do you think those stats are? He... 61 times, and she, 55. So way more than in Wild at Heart, but even in the book for women, he is still mentioned more. So, yeah, that's fun. Um, Questions and comments. Comment from David. I absolutely love this series. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, David. I will. Um, a comment from Vlad. 
listening to the podcast right now, Wild at Heart is a spinoff of King Warrior Magician Love. Uh, I hadn't heard of that. I looked it up. And the book is King Warrior Magician Lover Rediscovering the Archetypes of the Mature Masculine. And that was written in 1991. I have no idea. Never heard of it before. I have no idea what it's about. But uh, rediscovering the archetypes of the mature masculine. Yeah, sounds, <laughs> sounds about right. And then... Jamie asked, other than John writing all of it, mm-hmm, are there major overlapping themes each chapter? And reading them separately, obviously, yeah, the major, just the major theme of misogyny, you know, runs, runs through both of them. But like reading them, reading them back to back and like reading them, looking at my notes like right now, it's like, oh, like he literally... Yeah, like the Paul, the out of context Paul quote, right? That is in chapter two of both books. There is, there's a whole section that he pulls from, from Wild at Heart, chapter two. Um, There is, it's just very, to me, it is very clear that this book is a cash grab. Captivating was just a cash grab. And they said, ooh, the men really liked, this really worked for, for the men, so let's do one for the women. And John just said, okay, what did I say in Wild at Heart, chapter one, and how can I, all right, now let's just write captivating chapter one with these same ideas. What did I say in Wild at Heart, chapter two? Okay. Let me just take Wild at Heart and just rewrite it for for a woman. So, yeah, to me, that's 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 what it seems like. Like even, yeah, there are just a few instances specifically in this chapter where again, chapter two. To chapter two of the next book and they have the same not just the same themes but in some cases like the exact same scripture reference or again a full chunk of wild at heart chapter two just happens to be in captivating chapter two so it's a cash grab john did not he just rewrote bits and pieces of Wild at Heart for not even a a feminine audience. He just rewrote it for himself. Like, he's just saying what he's always wanted to say to women, about women, and he just wants to make women regurgitate his thoughts about them. That's what I think. So, yeah. And then... Ashley asked, and this is a really good question, said, here's a question I thought of. As a person on the asexual, aromantic spectrum, it's really interesting for me to hear all the bold claims in these books about love and romance being the epitome of what makes you a human. Do you or any of your guests have any thoughts on this? And I have a lot of thoughts. Um, And especially 
this week in particular coming off the back of all this Josh Josh Butler was that his name who wrote the the book about sex and godliness or whatever and you know they have the excerpt of of one of his chapters um and everyone just rightfully being grossed out by it right like this this analogy of how sex is showing god's love for the church whatever just just gross right and so a thought a thought i've had about that is like what if what if not everything is is an allegory right what if sex is just something that god just gave to humanity here here's here's a fun thing you can do and it's not not everything has to be a symbol for something else like maybe parts of this life most of this life is just the living of it right like it doesn't have to point to anything anything more maybe the point of sex is just that god thought of us and said here here's this cool thing you can do and that's that's it it's not about god it's not about here's the symbol like it's just here's this thing I'm giving you just because I love you and that's it right like is every gift that you give to someone else a message about something else or is it just here I just wanted you to have this right and so this idea of love and romance being the epitome of our you know human experience love may be maybe right because there's so many different kinds of love and yeah we haven't really haven't really talked about it yet in this book we talk about it i remember talking about it a lot i don't even remember which chapter chapter it was but um it's with with tori whatever episode the future episode that is but like just talking about the idea of how how much the church conflates right this idea of you know god god is our father but also god is our bridegroom and like you know jesus is our our savior and our brother i guess if if we're all the children of god and that's god's son so jesus is our brother but jesus is also our lover and the bridegroom like you can be you can be my father or my lover you can't be both you can be my brother or my lover you can't be both and like just this idea like christian evangelicalism is honestly gross in a lot of ways and in a lot of these allegories and so because we are not good with separating love from romance right not all love is romantic and romantic love is not romantic love is not the height of love it's a type of love it's a nice type of love but not everyone is into it right so it can't be it can't be the ultimate because if it was then god should have given it to everyone but because it's not something that everyone gets it's not something that everyone desires it can't be the ultimate and then so yeah so we have to learn to separate love from romance 
And then we have to learn to separate romance from sex. Evangelicals are not good at that. And so when we can't separate those things, then we make romantic love, which has to go hand in hand with sex, the height, right? So now this is how this is how we get to these gross places where sex is the ultimate picture of how God is expressing his love. And I just don't think it is. Like these things can be separated out. So for me, I think that love, love might be the epitome of what what makes us human right like I think we can you can live without sex you can live without romance you can live without love I guess so let's not say live let's say let's talk about survival surviving versus thriving right you can survive without sex you can survive without romance you can survive without love I don't think you can thrive without love Um, but there's again all kinds of love right like I love I love my cat this little cat that's not even my cat but I love I love this stupid little cat and my life would be um yeah more empty without her I wouldn't be lost without her right but yeah my life my life would be a little less colorful a little less full with her I love that cat I do not have romantic feelings for that cat right it's not that kind of love but it is a very a very life-giving love It's just not that kind of love, but it is very, very life-giving. So I think but it is very life-giving. So I do think that love is is part of what makes us better, better humans. Again, like I think you can live without love, but you're not you're not gonna thrive without it, and you're not going to be a good person without it um but you can thrive you can be a good person without romance you can thrive you can be a good person without sex um but evangelicalism is not good at parsing those things out and so it doesn't know how to deal with people who can separate right sex and love and romance like that whole section about you know women and women's desire and what women can't do sexually like that is that is coming from that that very limited that very small again that very male centered and selfish perspective um yeah yeah so I hate that that evangelicalism has has so conflated and combined those those three things, right? Have created this unholy trinity and have not only created it, but then also held it up as again this the epitome, right? This height of human experience. 
that their own savior, according to their narrative, didn't even reach, didn't, never had. Um, So that doesn't make sense. But then also, you know, have set these standards that deprive so many people of these things that on one hand they're saying you need to experience you have to have to experience and understand the fullness of God but then also be like no 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 but not for you not for you queer people not for you single people not for you just not for you right just not for you whoever whoever we don't like and doesn't doesn't meet the stipulations to fill out this paperwork that we have decided you know like so it's it's all a scam it's a scam and and just for good measure even though he didn't he didn't put the system in place but fuck you john again um for just upholding upholding all of this and yeah this uh this episode has already gone on longer than i anticipated and that's uh that's all i have to say about that so yeah thanks for thanks for being here thanks for listening and onward and it's not upward so just just onward onward we go and i'll see you for chapter threes thank you for joining me for this episode of wild at captivating and for helping make all the podcast things i do possible by being a jodly or jod willing patron i hope you are enjoying this season of bad words and whenever you're willing and able i hope you'll be part of these live episodes by sending an email dm or voice note with a question comment or concern you'd like me to respond to to God is not given at gmail.com or on instagram and for the jod willing and able i hope you'll join me as a guest when you can And either way, until we meet again, take care of you and be well. I am Janice Legata, and this has been a patron-only episode of Bad Words, but here are some patronizing Eldritch words that are so bad, they're actually good when read out of context. Does Jesus tiptoe around the issue next time so as not to rock the boat, the preference of so many of our leaders today? Does he drop the subject in order to preserve church unity? Nope. He walks right into it, he baits them, he picks a fight, 